welcome back to the Jig is Up. Of course, my name is Darcy, and joining me from the North Country, as always, is Jason. How's it going, buddy? Good. How's my favorite bearded guy in Calgary? I am doing just fantastic down here. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's it's pretty nice. Looks weather, like so you had a complain. looks like you had a busy day today. <laughs> I did have a little busy day today. I was out uh, attending the uh, rally for solidarity and support for the wet soap and. What, what, I never say that right, but anyway, um, for what's happening on the uh, West Coast right now, that was a very interesting rally to attend. Yeah, look, I didn't get to see the whole thing on uh, the Facebook there where you were live streaming because uh, I was in and out at work, but it looked interesting. How many people do you think were there in total? I, I suck at trying to guess the amount of people. I heard somebody say there was about 100 on each side of the the uh, the discussion. So there was uh, the people that were there to support the Wet'suwet'en people, and then there was the pro pipeline, uh, you know, typical downtown Calgary oil crowd. Uh, and there was actually a there's an organization that's uh, trying to promote pro pipeline agenda, and they actually came down to uh, to try to rally. So they, as an anti protest to what they considered an, an anti pipeline protest. So there's about a hundred on each side, I would say. So like a Mexican standoff, but in Calgary, pretty much, yeah. And it's it's it was interesting though because, uh, like I I knew the police were going to be there because anytime you have pro pipeline and anti pipeline individuals there, it's gonna you know the shit's gonna hit the fan basically, and uh, there was no disappointment there, and uh, the police themselves, they. Uh, they formed a line with their their mountain bikes, and uh, basically the pro pipeline people were not allowed to cross over that line, and the anti pipeline people, I guess for lack of a better term, weren't allowed to cross the other way either. So, and then when it got really started to get rowdy, they brought in like another bunch of officers to stand as a buffer between the mountain bikes and the pro pipeline guys to keep them even a little further back. So it was, it was very interesting. <laughs> For for what about two hundred people? I would say there was probably at least fifty police officers. <clears throat> so sounds about right for downtown Calgary. Yeah, it was. You know, and it was interesting. I um because I took a lot of live video. I, I did a twenty minute live video, which I didn't even realize was that long. But uh, so if anybody's looking to see videos of Calgary, you can go to the Jig Is Up, and you can see there's I think there's three live videos there. Um, and then, uh, I'm going to get you some video. So you're going to try to get a YouTube video put up, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, it was, but it was interesting. Um, there was, uh, you know, there was a few people saying that your typical racist stuff, like go back to the res or, you know, and there was a lot of people chanting things like, how much did you get paid to come and protest? But I think what what bothered me about this whole thing is that it's it was played up as a protest of anti pipeline, but it was actually meant as a rally of solidarity for the against the violence that's gonna that's happening right now on the west coast towards indigenous people. It really wasn't about anti pipeline. It was about anti violence and removal of people from their land. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge, though. Um... In this whole discussion, though, you, that's not what's being talked about in mainstream media. You know, you're not going to turn on the national tonight and have them have a conversation about, you know, violence against Indigenous people or removal of Indigenous people from lands. It's going to be completely revolving around this conversation of 
either being for the energy sector or against the energy sector. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's what I noticed even when I got home tonight and I was looking at, um, you know, some of the, the news footage and stuff, it was all, uh, anti-oil protesters or anti-pipeline protesters, but, and it wasn't really talked about, uh, like they, they talked about the violent, the RCMP arresting people, but it wasn't talked about in the way it should be, which is you're bringing in basically a paramilitary force to remove people from their home violently. And whereas it was meant, it was played up as, oh, some protesters got arrested at a protest today on the West Coast. And and then the all the rallies across Canada were kind of played up as, well, they're just anti-pipeline protests. But So I, I really feel, I mean, I'm not surprised by media by doing that because you know they're going to do that. But it just, it was disappointing anyway. Status quo. I think it goes a long way to show the the narrative difference between uh, the Indigenous perspective and the Canadian state at large, though, um, showing that, uh, you know, that it, this, you know, there's just a general assumption that a protest is happening on Crown land. It's the removal of, you know, uh, those Indians off of Crown land, yeah. still trying to stop an energy project to go through. And so... That's really how they see it, and uh, the whole concept of uh, unceded land and traditional territory and and treaties and that kind of stuff never enters the conscious mind of of most you know settler journalists and definitely their audience. Absolutely, and and you could see that uh, really well with the pro pipeline guys that were there to I guess anti protest what they considered to be an anti pipeline protest. Um, because a lot of them were there just talking about, uh, you know, build pipelines, build pipelines and drill, drill, drill. But the reality was, is this was about the RCMP going in again, yet again, and forcibly and by, you know, at the end of a gun, removing people from their land and their homes. And, you know, this is a story that's played out in Canadian history against Indigenous people since, can you know, settlers started arriving, and it continues to this day. And uh, I, it's just, it's sad that they don't, they don't portray what's actually happening. And I think it, it really plays well into creating that kind of racist divide within Canada. Absolutely, it's the perpetuation that uh, somehow all Indigenous people are just, uh, you know stuck in the 1500s where we all want to hug trees, live on the land and roam around in our breech cloths uh, in the woods. And, you know, everyone else is just, you know, then we, then we, on the same hand, we look at, uh, you know, pipelines and the energy sector as progress. And so, you know, here we have these tree hugging Indians standing in the way of, of righteous progress as it were. (laughs) And it sets up a real false dichotomy in the conversation, but it sure plays well on mainstream news. Absolutely. And and I think that's really, um, you know, in my perspective, that's really the agenda of, of government and RCMP in these situations. Like I've, I've been reading a lot about how the RCMP have cut out certain media um, and not allowed them in, but certain media has been allowed in. Um, and really that the only reason for that is to control the narrative, right? I mean, uh, I'm not a big fan of APTN's reporting, but I don't think APTN... It, it, to me, it's not a coincidence that the only Indigenous, you know, national broadcaster was cut out of media coverage when it comes to Indigenous people getting removed violently from their land. 
And that is, that's, it's a hundred percent an effort to control the narrative so that the RCMP can tell you whatever they want to tell you. And the general public will, will believe it because there's who, there's no one, nothing else to refute that. And, uh, you know, it was pretty obvious to me that that's what was going on. Well, you know, people can argue about a lot of things, but the fact is, is you can't argue about the force. Uh, you have unarmed people. Even if they're in greater number, but the reality is there's nobody who has a gun there. No. Nope. And yet the what shows up is not the RCMP even. It's not even the regular police force detachment. No. Nope. It really is a, a virtual military that shows up in, in full military, you know, armament. And you look at, they got their AR rifles and, and everything there. And it was kind of shocking to think that, look at the power and equity when it comes to force. Oh, totally. Um, I would have, I'd be a lot more sympathetic or, you know, for people who are forcibly getting removed if it was just the regular RCMP. But here we have like, we're, we're two strokes away. You might as well just, I mean, if we owned them, I guess you could show up in tanks, but we don't have any tanks in Canada. So, <laughs> I, like, <laughs> But if we did, I'm sure we would be using them right now. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. I mean, they brought in what they call the, what is it, emergency response teams, which is their tactical units, which are flown in from all over the country. And uh, they're they're a military force. I mean, they're they're fully decked out with uh, weaponry that is you know flick of a switch and it's uh, semi-automatic. Uh, you know, like it's it, it, there, there's nothing about this that doesn't scream violence. And they brought in their armored vehicles and things like that, as though these guys are going to you know launch grenades. And we're going to have World War Three here in in uh, you know West Coast BC. When none of, other than maybe a couple of hunting rifles, uh, none of them are armed. You have a line of hereditary chiefs standing there. You have all these people have always been peaceful, and yet you got to show up like that. And it's it's, you know, I'm I'm a for anybody who knows the history of the RCMP, you you know that that you know they were formed to quell the the indigenous people, and they've done a great job of that throughout the years. They've done a great job of busting up unions and. And busting up, uh, you know, union uh, picketing and things like that. These guys are violent. This is what they do. They use violence to shut people down. And uh, you know, it's just sad. We've seen this on the the East Coast a couple of years ago with when it came to fracking. You had military snipers out there. You know, you had you know all sorts of stuff, and they showed up as you know emergencies response team. And it's pretty sad. It's just really sad. I think. Well, and I think that that's the challenges we have these ongoing conflicts in recent times. Or, you know, we can go back right to, like you said, when the, the settlers first got here. But, you know, even in recent years, we look at the the standoffs that have happened over resource expansion into traditional territory that wasn't wanted. And it has always been a lopsided balance of power. And I think that's that's tragic because I don't think the you know that uh, we want to have see another Oka, but the reality is it really shows that force sadly is all that the colonial settler mind understands. Absolutely, yeah, and you know I mean you look at Gustafson Lake. Uh, it was the RCMP and the military that were, I think it was military too, but uh, they bombed civilians. Guys just driving a truck down a road, they used uh, roadside bombs to blow up the truck. Um, it, you know, at Oka, it, it was an armed standoff. They brought in the military, um, you know, West or the East coast. They, it was the same thing. Like, and so it's just a continued, I mean, this story has been told and told and told, 
And so for, you know, I, I mean, this wasn't a surprise to me, to be honest with you. I kind of thought this was coming, uh, like I said on our Facebook page, like uh, 2015 when he, when Trudeau got elected, I just, I had this feeling that we're going to see an arm standoff when it comes to pipelines. And I'm not saying that the indigenous were doing anything, you know, armed, but the more that the government responds this way, I think the more likely that eventually someone's going to respond back in that same way. So it's a road they're heading down and they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. And it's quite sad. I think that's the real reality. Um, I think you and I have even talked about this a long time ago, uh, probably not long after Standing Rock, that this was shaping up to be a similar uh, situation. Uh, yeah. Up here in Canada. And so I'm, I'm kind of watching. I would love to be there myself if I wasn't trying to pay a mortgage and feed my children. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. The sad part is I don't know if we'll get the same support that Standing Rock had. I don't. I, I mean, I don't see it becoming Canada's Standing Rock. I, I would love for it to become that. I like. I would love to see that much, uh, that many people come together and that much support being poured into that area. Um, to, I mean, I, I just, I don't see people traveling. You know, middle of winter, all the way out there. It's, it's just tough. But especially since the police have already gone in and started breaking it all up. Um, I mean, at this point, they're there. They're not going to let anybody in anyway. So yeah, there's not even, I don't even think you could get to those camps if you tried right now anyway. So it, it's, it is too well, bad. I, I, yeah. Well, and I think just the remoteness of the area makes it very difficult. It isn't like being in the Dakotas where, you know, you got ready, ready access in the central venue point here. We're talking a fairly remote place in Northern BC with yeah. basically a single road access. I think the best that we could ever see is, you know, roadblock the cops in there <laughs> to take all your cars and just park them on the road and walk away. <laughs> well, that's a good idea. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> just drive up there, leave your car on the road. Wait till they run out of supplies and have to rely on the indigenous people to feed them again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when there, when there's a thousand or 5,000 or 10,000 cars just all blocked on, parked on the road, yeah. I guess it'll keep the tow truck busy for a couple months till they can get them out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I wanted to, I wanted to, along this lines, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so we got article, article 10 of UNDRIP, which states that uh, indigenous people shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. No relocation shall take place without the free, prior, and informed consent of the Indigenous peoples concerned and after agreement on just and fair compensation and, where possible, the option of return. So I know that a lot of people are quoting UNDRIP and a lot of people are saying that government's violating UNDRIP, and they are. However, as we've talked about before on this podcast, UNDRIP is not legally binding in Canada. It is not a law. Even though in Parliament they said they are going to move to support and, and implement UNDRIP into the legal system, that hasn't happened yet. It's a promise to do it. But at this point in time, UNDRIP really is just a, a document where our government said, yeah, we support it. Absolutely, but it, you're absolutely correct. It is not law inside of the Canadian framework because that's the whole point. I think what other people, you know, a point that's of, of worth notice is how you have these chief and council people who are 
you know, what they call duly elected officials, but really are employments of the federal government. Yes. Um, and they give consent for projects, but then you have the hereditary chiefs who oppose that. And I think it really shows you that it is almost impossible within the Canadian framework to meet that declaration in under it because free and prior consent would have to be then at arm's length from the government. Yes. And because how it's like, you know, if you're an employee at a business and your boss comes to ask you to do something and the consequences might be the loss of your job if you don't, well, is that free? And, you know, is that a free consent you're giving? Yeah. If you're, you're dependent on the federal government for that position and that paycheck. So it's not. And I think that's the reason that you haven't seen that implemented within the Canadian framework is because we have all these Indian Act chiefs who are paid employees of the government. Absolutely. And I think that that really brings up a, a you know, a good point about how how dangerous these colonial, colonial elected uh, leaders, quote unquote, are. And when you when you look at, uh, you know, Métis organizations, a lot of those people are elected through colonial systems in a colonial uh, nonprofit system. And we, we've talked extensively about certain organizations that really just do the government's bidding. And, and uh, you know, I even said it on, on, our, on our Facebook page uh, the other day that, you know, for, for leaders to say that, that Justin Trudeau is the, the greatest thing for Indigenous people that we've ever seen, and then to watch the RCMP walk in in full military mode and remove people who are simply living on a chunk of land and have a road blocked off because it's their territory, which they won the rights to in the Supreme Court of Canada, that recognizing they have not ceded that land to Canada, that they have the right to that land, and yet the government still sends in a military force to do that. And then I think that's where it, it speaks volumes to the danger of these leaders who just do whatever the government says as long as they promise them money. Yeah, and it's it's a buy buy off. Not only are their jobs secure, not only does the money keep flowing to the to these you know Indian Act chiefs, but it's the trade off for a few jobs for a little while at you know shoveling dirt while they put a pipeline through, and then that employment job's over. So they look like heroes, these Indian Act chiefs, for a very brief time while people go to work, while they get a little job, yeah. make a little money, and then the pipeline's in and it's over, and those jobs evaporate, and so it's. It's very, you know, short-sighted, short-minded uh, as far as an Indigenous people should really be, you know, where there's no no seven generations foresight in this kind of planning that's going on. But you can see how insidious the money game is when it comes to how the government deals with First Nations. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, especially in this case, because you did have, um, from what I understand... There were elected chiefs who approved the pipeline, but the hereditary chiefs and the people opposed it. Well, so who's who is the one that, that you go with? Well, the government's going to go with, and they have obviously gone with, hey, your elected chiefs said it's good, so we're good. And, you know, this, this reminds me so much of uh, during the last federal election, um, our MP here locally is a liberal and he's absolutely horrendously bad, but um, 
<laughs> he was at a he was at a debate, and I asked him about um, consultation. And his their idea of consultation was, you know, the chief of the AFN. If if the chief of the AFN says, yeah, no, that's a good idea, they consulted with all indigenous people across the land, so it's good. And to me, this is the same thing. It's like, well, we've paid these chiefs, and they've said yes, so we're good. We don't care. Who cares about people and hereditary chiefs? And eh, they don't matter because we got our sign off. And clearly that's what the courts went with. So I think it's a real dangerous game. And I think this should be an eye opener to people with what's happened, you know, last year with the, the Métis cartel and, and, and things like that. And all of this focus on resources. And uh, I, I just think it's a real warning sign for a lot of people with when it comes to these these chiefs or these you know, so-called leaders. Well, it really shows the dichotomy in the mindset of, of traditional indigenous um, governance structures and hierarchy and power within the community versus the colonial government. You know, the colonial government thinks that as long as the headman says yes, then it's yes for everyone. And we see within Canada that it always goes from the top down. And yeah. that is traditionally how the colonial government has worked as far back as you go right to back to the King of England. Uh, it's always worked that way. Yes. And that, but that's not how our traditional governance systems work. And I, I think we're really seeing a wake up call that we have to abandon trying to mimic their system, the colonial system and dealing with the colonial government in hopes that we'll have success because when we set up a power structure within our own indigenous communities that mimics the colonial government, we see that over and over again, they use it against us, you know, for things like free informed consent. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about that before on the podcast where we've talked about, um, you know, the, the blue blob map, we'll go back to that. And I don't want to harp on that, but it, the point is, is they're going to, they're now going to turn to, you know, these leaders of these, you know, the cartel and say, you know, hey, we want your approval on this. They'll give their approval. And now corporations, government, whoever can say, well, hey, we got indigenous consultation. And that's, to me, that's that was the first thing I thought of when I seen all this happening last year with the, the cartel and now with this happening. And I just think, I think there's really easy parallels and, and, and dots to connect here as to what we can expect in the future when it comes to resource, uh, you know, deals or resource uh, extraction. So I, I hope that people see those lines and those parallels. Well, it's inevitability, really. We have these, again, it goes back to our structures. We have yeah. these, you know, indigenous structures that we claim are our, our government. You know, we have, you know, the for the Métis people, we have the Métis National Council and its subsidiary frameworks. And we have the AFN and it's in its chief and council and band members and it's its structure. And these all these pyramid structures are based on the colonial mindset and governance structure. And it, it and what's funny is we've adopted them as indigenous people, but even for the colonial people, it never worked for them. Yeah. How many people were oppressed and made serfs? And you look at the Highland clearances in Scotland and people forcibly removed in England from yep. their land and in Scotland from their land. How is it any different than that when we have a colonial government that comes here that we're surprised, you know, 150, 250 years later, they want to keep still removing people from their land. That's how that structure works. It's how it treats its people and its subordinates within the system. 
Absolutely. Why on earth would, as indigenous people, we would want to mimic that kind of power structure or allow them to try to, you know, through money, um, put that on us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, that's dead on. Like why, why continue these things? Um, and, and the, the sad reality is I think, um, people for the, for a lot of people, I think they've lost an understanding of what traditional governance is. Um, when you look at Métis people, what is traditional governance for Métis people? Well, it varies from region to region. It's different. It's, you know, some of it's more church-based, some of it's more indigenous-based. It's So it's really hard to peg down what is traditional. I think for, you know, Inuit and First Nations, it's probably a little bit easier. Uh, but certainly for Métis people, there is no one right answer as to what is a traditional government. Um, and so, yeah, I think you just, you're going to have, and, and that's where I say like this, to me, this wasn't a huge surprise. I kind of always... I guess had a little hope that we might be doing better, but at the end of the day, you know, this is where we are for a nation to nation. This is where we are for reconciliation. It's at the end of a colonial military force gunpoint. That's, that's where it sits. Well, I will be honest. Um, it's not something I readily expected to happen under the, the Trudeau regime. You know, that's something you'd think the conservative side of the the spectrum might push a little more readily especially given the rhetoric we've been given about reconciliation over the last several years <clears throat> the amount of money flowing from the federal government to these you know INAC uh, organizations and the Métis National Council um, you know it kind of had that feel of well you know maybe they'll find a better way to do this yeah. but really push come to shove at the end of the day you know the colonial government continues to show us uh, indigenous folks exactly how it is and that's going to be that regardless of the color of the people you put in charge whether they're you know the red guys or the blue guys or the green guys it's going to be the same story it's going to come down to the state the, the you know the fiction of canada uh usurping indigenous land absolutely and i you know i i've had uh, quite a few people i've noticed that are you know are, are taking this as pro pipeline or anti pipeline and and again i want to i kind of want to like just kind of go back to that a bit and just cuz i don't think it for me it doesn't matter whether you're pro pipeline or anti pipeline for me what it is is i'm anti violently removing people from their their territory specifically in this case it's unceded territory that's been recognized by the con- colonial legal system as unceded territory so um, the real problem here is that they did get those colonial chiefs to approve. But for me, it's it's the violent removal of people. That's what I'm opposed to. In my opinion, pipelines can be moved. I I know that for a fact. Um, but yet the government always seems to want to push this. Um, we're putting a pipeline there and we don't care who says what. We're doing it. Rather than going to community and saying, you don't want it, we'll go around you. Or we'll move it somewhere else. You know, like there are other options, and so I don't even I don't like this conversation in a in a way because it just boils down to people getting mad about pro pipeline, anti pipeline. But the reality is, for me, it's I don't want this violence towards people anymore. I don't want to see people, children and an- elders getting arrested. Like there was elders that got arrested. Like come on. 
But that's, I think, the the challenge that we have is the Crown has the ultimate authority within the Canadian state. And it's all fun and games right up until you oppose the agenda. And I, and so what I don't like is the disregard for the rule of law that shows that it's unceded territory. And it really, you know, kind of frosts my cookies when you can buy off your paid employees in these Indian Act chiefs to, you know, be your monkeys and play your tune. And and then again, there's no respect by the, the federal government for traditional uh, indigenous, indigenous levels of governance, you know. Um, so the guys in BC have found a way to to control and, you know, put in proper placements protocols for hereditary chiefs and the idea of the Indian Act chief. And yet the colonial government doesn't respect that. Yeah. So how how do we have a relationship when we talk nation to nation and we talk reconciliation when the federal government doesn't even care in, you know, now 2019 about acknowledging and recognizing the differences of colonial government versus traditional indigenous government? Absolutely. I think it from, you know, it's very clear. It boils down to we can have a nation to nation relationship as long as we're very clear that we're the top nation and you're the bottom nation. We can have reconciliation as long as it's we're very clear. We, we both understand that it's going to be what we want is reconciliation, not what you want. And to me, this is, you know, yet another example. And um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's surprising to some that it happened to on Trudeau's watch, but I think this was bound to happen. I think it was just inevitable. Um, I knew, you know, the, these camps have been there for years and they've been fighting this fight. And it was just, as the construction got closer, you knew this was going to come down to deadline crunch time and it has, but, uh, but it's just a, a constant reminder that there's no nation to nation. There's no real reconciliation. There's, We'll do a little bit of stuff to appease you and maybe, you know, make some promises, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast, what their promises are worth. But that's really what it boils down to. It's not nation to nation. It's not implementing UNDRIP. It's not it's not doing anything to really inconvenience the the colonial structure of Canada in what in any way whatsoever. Yeah, they're they're very concerned that uh and it's all rhetoric, right? They got to make sure these pipelines yeah. get in so they can get their product to market. <clears throat> There's no conversation ever if if someone's there to actually buy it on the market. Yeah. All kinds of products make it to market and they flop because there's no one left to buy them. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I totally agree with you. It's it's for me. It's not about a pipeline or not a pipeline. I'm not talking pro oil or anti oil. I'm talking, for me personally, it boils down to, you know, First Nation sovereignty over the land and the inability of the crown to understand. We have 151 years of this conversation back and forth between, you know, respecting Indigenous people, respecting Indigenous culture, respecting Indigenous language, and all we have this good conversation about how the colonial government wants to respect it. But when, when it comes to actually interacting with First Nations communities and Métis communities. They don't have the first clue. Yep. All they're looking for is to, again, throw commodities, throw money at Indigenous people so that you'll step aside and allow them to do whatever they want to do to continue their their degradation and you know, greed on the land. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this boils down to they want to keep you they want to keep you in a certain position so that you're, you know, still they want they want to keep you in the mentality of ward of the state. You're they want to continue to look at, at indigenous people as wards of the state that they have to take care of. They want to continue to propel that myth to the Canadian population. And they want to keep people in that in that uh, mindset. They want to keep people, you know, we'll promise new programs, we'll promise more funding we'll pro- for those programs. But what they don't talk about is, we will promise to give you land back that you can control, you have final rights, you have all the say, and we'll sign that deal. That is never the deal. I mean, look at the, the framework agreement that they're trying to sign right now. It's the same one Harper had. And it, it's basically, let's turn your reserve into a municipality, turn all the land into into where it's owned by people and can you can sell and buy it. Anybody can buy and sell it. So there's no reserve anymore. So so now you're integrated. Well, that's the white paper. That That's, that's Harper's plan. But it, it has nothing to do with, let's actually see you become a healthy, sovereign nation again. Nothing to do with that. And I, I think that's the misnomer that a lot of people get get led into this trap with them, is it's like, well, oh, now Trudeau's here and he talks a great game. But the truth is, it's just all talk. And I, that's, you know, that's what we've talked about a lot of times on the podcast when it comes to the promises of huge funding for Métis people. It's, it's just a big talk. But where's the action? Where's the... Where's the true respect for Métis people, for Inuit, for First Nations? It's it's not there. It's not behind the words at all. Yeah, and and this whole episode lately just goes to to prove that fact. You know, it, it, you know, we hear the language that uh, that has been used in both in the AFN at, at the big level and at the MNC at the high level uh, in the relationship talks with the the Trudeau government. And it has been very positive, very glowing, very, you know, how Trudeau is, is the second coming of Christ. And yet at the same time, you see when the rubber hits the road and it's about energy and resource development and it's about the land, that indigenous people are fine for the Trudeau government and virtually any colonial government as long as they're not on the Canadian government's land. Yeah. It's how yeah. they view it. Yeah, as long as they don't get in front in in front of the agenda and try to inconvenience us at all, then then you're good. You're fine. You're totally sovereign and and independent, and you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't inconvenience us and we don't have to see you. <laughs> it's essentially what it yeah. boils down to. Which you brought up the AFN, and I wanted to point out before I forget because I do that a lot. Um, they actually put out a statement and they framed it that the anti pipeline protesters. Um, you know, have the support of the AFN. However, we also have to uh, recognize the Canada, you know, the rule of law in Canada, and uh, uphold Canada's legal like laws. So, but there again, you know, that goes back to framing this as an anti-pipeline thing when it's this is about people being violently removed from their home, <laughs> like I, I, and and for the AFN to say what they said, I think is absolutely horrendous um but and and then on the metis side of things i only know of one organization that put out a statement of support for the wetsuit and people and that was the metis federation of canada that put out an official um you know statement of support so it's it's very interesting to see all these inac paid uh, organizations just disappear (laughs) 
when it when it comes to stuff like this. Well, and I think that's the real problem. And I'm I was very disheartened to to read about uh, the statement from the AFN because that's what it really bugs me is that it talks about the real you know rule of law when the you know, what the government has and there isn't a rule of law when it comes to the government no and what i don't understand is if we're talking nation to nation when does canada respect first nations law exactly you know? and, and here we have a prime example of how the indian act chief says yes but the hereditary chief says no Canada then says, well, we'll only respect our own rule of law yep. since we are the highest authority of the land and we will disregard all indigenous governance system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that was really disappointing to hear from the AFN that they within the, you know, that organization don't acknowledge, you know, traditional indigenous form of government as a rule of law to be respected. Absolutely. And I mean, especially in this case, this is, in all honesty, this is probably the best, um, I guess, example of, of this because this is unceded territory. Not only that, they actually went to the Supreme Court and won their case where the Supreme Court recognized that they have the rights and title to 22,000 square kilometers of northern British Columbia because they had not ceded their territory to Canada. And yet, how does the rule of law of Canada apply to their land then? Like that, that is, that is where this is, this is going to be a very interesting case to see what happens, you know, in the Canadian legal system moving forward, because if the Canadian legal system is, is not applicable on that, those 22,000 square kilometers, then how did you enforce violently through militaristic means, uh, Canadian colonial law? And I, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be another 10 years of legal battles, or more, but uh, it will be very interesting to see that go to the Supreme Court or go as high as it goes. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, you talk about organizations like the Maintain National Council and you look at the AFN and I think people need to wake up and realize, I think they are, you know, that we need to, you know, with strong support and camaraderie, really begin to overthrow these organizations and whoever, you know, and get rid of these positions inside the community. Um, if no one puts their name forward to be on chief and council, then there's not going to be a chief and council. That's true. And I think we need to be able yep. at a community level, you know, abolish these, you know, Indian act chiefs and get back to hereditary chiefs and hereditary systems of doing things, yep. you know, tribal ways of doing things the way our ancestors did them and, and just not have these positions and get rid of them because the government wants them there. Yeah, absolutely. And the government's going to throw more and more money to make sure that they stay there because of situations exactly like this, where they can negate uh, indigenous government systems for the favor of their puppet chiefs. Absolutely. And I mean, if you have, and I'm not, you know, not all nations will have, uh, even if they have chief and council, they might not be all puppets for the government. Maybe they are really fighting the government. There are some that really do. Um, so I guess we're kind of lumping everybody as, as one thing, but the truth is, is every, you know, indigenous organization, every indigenous nation should be now standing up. And then when the government comes to call and say, let's talk about, you know, your rights, they, they should be sitting down or standing up and saying, 
yeah, we can talk about our rights as soon as you start respecting our, our brothers and sisters on the West Coast and our brothers and sisters on the East Coast and on whoever the next uh, armed, violent uh, confrontation is going to be against. Because it's not until they all we all stand up and, and say, you know, that no, that's enough. You have done this enough times that we're, done, we're tired of it. And it really is going to take that that show of force. And I just, I don't know if there's enough people willing to do it, you know, for fear of losing funding or losing programs, you know? I, I think it is a challenge and it really makes me wonder moving forward, you know, do we really have the solidarity that we, we talk about on social media um, to actually, you know, galvanize that in real life? Can we put enough real leadership in place, both within First Nations and, and Métis communities? to yeah. galvanize a new way forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it was, uh, I don't know, it was interesting being at the rally because every time the, uh, you know, the Indigenous tried to speak, they just started chanting over them and stuff. So, and it was, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of hate. And I think because there was a lot of news and cameras around, I think people were kind of suppressing their their racist bullshit. Um, but you could tell there was a lot of hate. Uh, from the pro pipeline people towards the indigenous that were there, uh, and even the non-indigenous that were there supporting the indigenous side, there was a lot of hate. And I think, you know, it's it's things like these where the government and and I, this is one of the things I think that drives me most nuts about the government is that they don't take this opportunity to stand up and make statements of fact or try to reduce the amount of racism or racist attitudes that are out there, they just silently encourage the rest of non-Indigenous Canada to blame these Indigenous people because we don't, we can't get good prices for our gas because we can't get to the coast, and because of these Indigenous people won't let us get there. And it, it really takes a shift off the government and puts it back on Indigenous people. And I, I hate to say that it's purposeful, but it almost, it has to be purposeful because after so many years... They're not putting any effort to dispel the racist myth. And so then you have to, the only conclusion you can draw is that they're actively, um, you know, not dispelling it for a reason. I know. And I, I, I totally agree. And we've talked about that before too, is that as indigenous people, we need to wake up and no level of, of government. It doesn't matter whether it's municipal provincial or federal is a friend of indigenous people yeah it is a system that systematically breeds racism yeah uh, and it, it's systemic because it's the the narrative that the land was either ceded it was you know first nations people were defeated metis people were defeated and the land belongs to the government and therefore anybody who opposes the government and its progress to enrich the lives and pocketbooks of the citizens of canada are you know enemies of the state yes and that essentially is the narrative and i think sadly we're going to have to work very hard as indigenous peoples to to combat that because there's no one who's going to do it for us absolutely i wanted to read uh, uh something from the uh you know we talk about the undrip and and the government support of that and and i just kind of want to read a little a part of the Canada's uh, expression in November 12th of 2010 of their support for UNDRIP, which took a lot of years. They actually didn't support it for a lot of years, but then I think through public 
pressure or whatever. They they actually did support it. Um, oh, where was it here? They talk about um, Im- improving the situation, or uh, but they they talked about wanting to improve uh, not only the relationship with you know Canada's Aboriginal people, but you know Aboriginal people's families and communities and and you know culture and stuff like that. And I just it, it it's just kind of as another example that I kind of I wanted to get out here for everybody to to hear that you know they say these words but they don't there's nothing behind them and when they talk about wanting to do things to strengthen communities and make them healthier and make them safer well, but they're not they're clearly not um, they're only doing that as a pacifier to keep you pacified so they can just do all their other business. But it like it's so far away from the intent of these words. It it it's almost laughable. Well, unless the intent of those words is if you would stop being on a reserve and start being in a municipality, if you'd stop this First Nation, you know, indigenous hui hui and you would become part of the Canadian collective, all these benefits could be yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't, I guess that is that is really what they want. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so there's, I don't know, there's just so many, I guess, issues around this. I mean, you know, just being at the rallies and seeing the rallies across Canada, like there's thousands of people turning out to these things. But yet uh, what you hear as, because I mean, a lot of the things I heard at the at the rally today were just ignorant things, like things where they're not based on on facts. I mean, they were they were yelling at the Indigenous that they're getting paid to be there today. And I'm like... Um, you guys are all the guys wearing all the t-shirts that were provided to you by an, uh, a non-profit organization with signs that were all made by that non-profit organization and the indigenous, I can guarantee you for a fact, not one of the people that was organizing that is a paid protester. Um, cause my wife was probably the main person there and she is definitely not paid either that or she's hiding it very well. I came home and asked her, I said, you know, I have it on good authority that you're getting paid for this. Now, I want to know where that money's going, but she didn't seem to think she was. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's all those freebies we Indigenous people get, you know, all this free <laughs> yeah. land, free health care, free education, free taxes, yeah. free gas, free smokes. Free military invasions whenever <laughs> they want. Yeah, so yeah. surely we must be getting paid to protest. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, there's like... You know, if if you have a nonprofit environmental group that like pays for somebody to come talk, well, now all pro all anti oil indigenous people are paid. It's like, man, are you serious? But that was what yeah. a lot of it was was just ignorant, you know, comments. And again, you know, nobody from government is stepping up to say, no, no, that that's not what this is about. This is what this, you know, like it's it's disappointing on another, on any way you look at this. So well, like I said, we can't depend on the government. It is no friend of ours, and I think they're completely um, using this as the uh, ability to whip the Canadian state citizens into a frenzy against Indigenous people. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> another thing that I, I I made a comment on one of the live streams I did. And I'm, I'm not sure if anybody can hear it because it might they might have been chanting, but. What I what I did think was funny is they both groups actually have common ground because the indigenous that were there, for the most part, don't support Trudeau because of well, exactly the reason they're there. 
And then on the other side, the pro pipeline guys don't support Trudeau either because he's not building pipelines. And I just kind of had a good chuckle at one point because they're all, the pro pipeline guys were so mad, like screaming and red faced mad. And I just thought, man, if you guys only knew how much you had in common. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, but I didn't dare say that too loud. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah. It well, was, and I think that's the problem though, is we have so much misinformation. We have so much miscommunication yep. that goes on in this country. We have so much um, myopic news. We even have the RCMP on location controlling what is said and what's not said. It's very yep. hard to inform people and educate people anymore. It's very hard to build consensus anymore. You know, we becoming more and more split as a society and radicalized as a society to either be pro or against. And there's just no way anymore to get people to talk in, in, in a conversation. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, uh, for anybody that's pro pipeline, like it, for them to, to sit down and just realize if like Jason, for you, if the government came along and just said, uh, um, you know, we're going to put a pipeline through and we're just going to move your house. We're going to put a pipeline through there, but don't worry. We'll, we'll put your house back sort of like for, well, I guess you're indigenous. So that wasn't applied to you, but somebody in your situation where you're living out in the country and they did that. I mean, if you don't give consent, like people will get pissed off if they just started removing non-indigenous people from their homes to build a pipeline. And yet on the flip mm -hmm. side, it's totally okay. You know, if they, if they wanted to put that through a uh, part of Calgary, there's no way that would happen. But to put it through, you know, um, Asquatchis, yeah, no problem. Of course. Why not? You know, it, it, it's like there's such a double standard. And I don't, it, I think if people sat down and actually thought about it for a minute, I think they would understand why Indigenous people are so upset about these things. Because it's, part of it is, yeah, they want to keep the, you keep it out of their territory. They want their rivers and their waters to stay clean and all that good stuff. But the other part of it is, this is this stuff is all forced and you have to remove the people to put the pipeline in and then you know throw the people back and say, "Yeah, there you go. Have fun. We did what we want, well, so now you're good to go." And that I just wouldn't the fly. challenge is even under crown legislation there's the right of eminent domain. And we have instances in Canada where that's actually been exercised in different jurisdictions where the, yes. the governments have used the right of eminent domain to forcibly relocate uh, people. And settlers get pissed off Absolutely. when they're forcibly removed by the government to land they feel they own. And yet at the same time, this is where the real, you know, dissident comes in is that when indigenous people are forcibly removed from their land, you know, they go, well, that's about freaking time because then we can get our pipeline in <laughs> or whatever they want, you know? Yeah. And it's, so it's, what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander kind of an idea. Absolutely. And and I've always kind of marveled at that, that if, you know, settlers inside of their system get pissed off about the right of eminent domain, why would they begrudge First Nations people about getting upset about something even more significant where you have the, like you said earlier, the Canadian state recognized that this is unceded, non-Canadian land. So the, the right of eminent domain doesn't even apply there because it's not Canadian. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like it. It's shocking to me, but it, I mean, at the same time, it's not shocking. But and and that's where I think you know people are so filled with this vitriol and this hate and this polarization of attitudes 
it's like, man, do you guys realize the, how how hip, hype, you know hypocritical that is? You know, another person pointed out online I saw that, uh, you know, to the non-Indigenous people, if someone was to come on your land and try to force you out of your home at gunpoint and you shot them, totally okay. And I mean, we have a situation in Saskatchewan where they were on somebody's land and they weren't even, ha- they didn't have weapons. And, you know, Colton Bushy got shot and the Canadian legal system said, no, totally okay. That's fine. Because he was on your land. He shouldn't have been there. And yet again, like you were just saying, the reverse of that is when the Canadian government comes onto non-ceded territory, which means it's not their land, if if any of those protesters or, you know, anybody at those camps would have responded in a violent way like the farmer did to Colton Bushy, oh, you'd have nothing but a, an absolute firefight and you'd have just a massive amount of people dead. Like, there's no doubt about that. And and to non-Indigenous Canadians, they would be like, well, they deserved it. They they shot first. Yeah, okay, but <laughs> it, it's this, we want it our way. It, it's very clear they want it their way, and that's it. There's no two-way street. It's a one-way street. Absolutely. And I think maybe we sh- we need to use, you know, dumb down our language and use smaller words. Instead of <laughs> saying unseated land, we just need to say not your land. You know, un- <laughs> unseated means not Canada's land. Yeah. Is that, I think that might help out a lot of people. Unseated. Does that mean someone got out of their chair? I don't know. <laughs> they, they, you know, they moved out of their chair, didn't move out of their chair. I don't know. Yeah. Something about a chair, unseated. Um, you know, Whereas if you just said, you know, this land, it doesn't belong to Canada, I think that's much more shocking probably to the average person. Yeah, I think it would be. But I, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we need to dumb this down a little bit. And I certainly think from some of the people that were at the uh, the rally today on the pro-pipeline side, I definitely think dumbing down the language is probably a beneficial thing. Um, well, if you've ever found yourself added to a yellow vest form like I have, you probably should take a clue, Young. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, those are so bad. I uh, I got sucked into the. I've been sick lately, which is why I guess we should. I should apologize to everybody. We didn't get an episode out last week because I was sick. Um, you know, and it's all about me. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's the I, host with the most. Yeah, that's right. I got sucked into that one night. I was uh, up late. I only got like two hours sleep. So three in the morning, I got sucked into some yellow vest videos, and I was like, "Holy crap! Are these people insane?" So. It's, yeah, it's a lot of racism there. Um, one of the, Okay, so the last, I guess, the, my last best memory of the whole rally today that I wanted to get out there before I forget again is uh, at one point in time, the pro-pipeliners decided they're going to start singing O Canada as loud as they can over top of the Indigenous uh, voices. And the person that was leading it, who happens to be my wife, uh she turned and uh, decided to kneel during that. And then all of the entire indigenous crowd that was on that side of it, that was supporting, you know, the wetsuit and people, they all kneeled for the the singing of Canada's national anthem. And I thought it just made an absolutely fantastic visual. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think I caught it on camera, but I was, it was a busy place, but I, I, I think I caught it on camera, but it was really cool to watch that. Well, next time, uh, we should all bring drums and the, you know, we, we can out drum them. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, yeah, I guess that's, I mean, that's, I don't know if I have much more to say about this other than, uh, you know, obviously I support the, the wetsuit and people, the Unistoten camps. Um, I, I, it breaks my heart to see people forcibly removed from their lands like this. Anytime that the RCMP are out in full military, uh, gear, it's not a good thing. Uh, it, somebody ends up dying uh, inevitably. And, uh, I really, really hope that does not happen this, in this situation. Uh, I just, but I know that that is a very, very high chance that that's going to happen. And, you know, it breaks my heart. So... Well, and hopefully today was just the first of many days of, of solidarity pro- protests across the country. Um, we need to keep it up. They need to get bigger. They need to get louder. We can't all get there, but we can all get to where we are. And I think it needs to continue. Um, it's the only way I think we'll ever get the message really across. Absolutely. And I, I did want to just point out, um, you know, the, with the Métis Federation of Canada statement, uh, the last bit of the statement said the Métis Federation of Canada will stand in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people in demanding that the provincial and federal governments uphold their responsibilities to the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous People and the Wet'suwet'en Law. So I, I think that's a, a it's a good way to put it. Um, it was a long statement, but um, but I think it's important that we show our solidarity. I think you know, if people can get out to rallies and show their support, that's great. I think there was, you know, a thousand people or more in Victoria. They were all across Canada. And I think th- at this point, really, that's what we can do is just show our support. Um, I know that you can go online and look them up and they have actual websites where you can donate to help uh, at one point fund the camps. But I think what you're going to be doing now is helping to fund the legal costs of these people that are arrested. Um, so please, if you can, do, provide some financial support. I would encourage people to go Google that and find that and, and definitely support that. Um, but I, the other thing that I, I mentioned when I posted a big long post on our Facebook page was, I think it's beholden to us as Indigenous people to look at the organizations we have and we're part of. And if they have not issued a su- statement of support, maybe it's worth calling them and and maybe asking them why they haven't and why they support through their silence, the violent removal of indigenous people from their land. Cause this is nothing more than continued genocide. So I would encourage all Métis whose organizations have not put out a, a statement of support that they call and they start demanding or they send emails and they inundate those organizations with questions as to why they are silent on this issue and why they are not standing up for their brothers and sisters who are on the West Coast getting arrested, getting, you know, put down on the ground in, at gunpoint uh, with a full military personnel um, deployment. So I, I, I would encourage people to do that. I concur. This is this is a time of action. It It is very much the standing rock of Canada. We're going to have a lot harder time to get there. But I think showing solidarity by rally in every community across this country is the only way we're going to get the message across. Uh, so before we go tonight, I actually did want to talk about one last thing. Um, I just, I guess I want to promote one last thing. Uh, here in Calgary, and I think this program is fairly well known, but if you're uh, having issues with addiction and things like that, I think this is, and, and you're Indigenous, this is a phenomenal program to take part in. 
it's kind of integrating the 12 steps with, uh, you know, indigenous, uh, spirituality, indigenous, um, traditions. It's called Wellbriety and it's put on, it's hosted here in Calgary by Freedom's Path Recovery Society. So I kind of just want to give them a shout out and say, you know, tell people if you are looking for an, of an avenue of recovery, you're indigenous and, or this just seems to make more sense to you than, than typical recovery programs. Um, certainly check them out. You can find them online and things like that. It's, if you want to find, email them something, it's whitebisoncalgary at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, so I hope people, I would encourage people if they're looking for help to, to go get that help. So, and I think that's all I had to mention. Anything you wanted to, to, to bring up at the last, Jay? No, I think that it's, this is, you know, I don't know what else I could say. We need to support with our finances, what we can, every dollar counts, and we need to support with our feet and get out there and make sure that uh, we show the people out there that they're not alone, they don't stand alone, and neither will we accept what's going on out there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if people are sitting around or maybe they're, you know, if they are listening to this uh, and they're wondering, well, what can we do other than phoning our Métis organization and, and asking them questions, you know, how else can we show support? I don't have a lot of money, but how can I show support? You know, you can always send emails and make phone calls to your the office of your uh, member of parliament um, and start asking them, why are you doing this? And and sending letters and, and stuff, like, or not letters, that's really ineffective, but um, emails or phone calls to, to INAC or, you know, start phoning your government, start doing something. If you feel like you want to do more, I would suggest starting there and, and figuring it out or... Get involved in your local area to start having rallies and helping part of the organization of rallies to show support, um, or in you know locally to find ways to raise money to, that you can donate to the to these uh, amazing people on the west coast. So there's lots of ways you can help. It doesn't all ha- boil down to to money. You can put in your time, you can put in your energy, and you know at the very end of the day, um, you know smudge and pray or or pray in the whatever way you pray. Um, and just hope that, uh, these people come out of this safe. And I think at this point, that's really what we're hoping for is that everybody comes out of this safe and, uh, and there's no, no shots fired by the RCMP and on indigenous people again. So I guess with that, um, I don't know if I don't have any more, anything else, Jay, you don't have anything else? No, sir. I think that I don't. I mean, we could keep going for a long time. I think this is an important topic. I think yeah. there is much to be had. This is, you know, an atrocity uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, you know, you can only flog a dead horse for so long. And I, I look forward to the conversation and what goes on. And I, I pray as well that people stay safe. I hope this doesn't result in people getting jail time for trying to do what's right. You know, and I hope we can show a, a good um, outpouring of solidarity through a- action and finance to really help make a difference in what's going on. Absolutely, and I guess from there, guys, if uh, you want to see more videos or you or you want to see the videos we I took when I was down at the rally in Calgary, you can definitely head to the Jig is Up on Facebook and see those. Um, and you find us at the Métis Podcast at, on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, Keeping It Real on YouTube. And I also want to mention that, you know, this year um, we we didn't really get into what we want to do this year with the show. 
But one of the things that I would like to do is actually get out, um, and we've talked about this before, but get out and get more stories, uh, get more, and not necessarily just stories of of what's currently happening, but you know, past stories, stories about communities. But to do that, uh, we're going to need, uh, we're, we're totally funded by our listeners. And so to do that, we're going to need you guys to show your support. So you can head to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Métis Podcast. And uh, for five bucks a month, you can help support us to get out there and bring you more stories. And ideally, ideally, I would love to be able to get out and get you more stories from different communities about things like what's happening right now on the West Coast and things like that. So if uh, independent Métis media is important to you and, and, and important to your family, friends, then I hope that you support us and I hope that you encourage others to head to our Patreon page as well and support us. I guess with that, that's all I got for tonight. So for Jason and I, until next week, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more living in darkness. Our time now 